right. Hello, once again, to all of y'all out there in the Cotton Belt. We want to welcome you to another episode of the Cotton Companion here. We are here uh, in the Cotton Grower offices in Cordova, Tennessee, just outside of Memphis. Today is Wednesday, March 23rd, and um, it has finally started to warm up here in Memphis and in the greater Mid-South around us, which is a nice change for us. Uh, It has been a very rain-soaked February and early March. We actually have been talking about uh, how we believe that due to the sort of parameters of the corn planting window, we may actually have some more folks around here considering cotton for the first time in a few years. For Cotton Grower Magazine, that can only be uh, a win. Is that not true, Jim? It absolutely is. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Stedman. Uh, happy to join Beck again, as usual, for yeah. uh, for the Cotton Companion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, the weather has everyone in a good mood around here. Uh, we've got a fairly simple show for you today. It's just the two of us. We had, we don't have any interviews with, you know, big company CEOs or any. Uh, U.S. representatives, any any movers or shakers of that nature, is just the two of us. We are going to be sitting around uh, talking about some of the goings on in the cotton market as usual. We are going to get started as we always do with Jim uh, leaving, le- not leaving, hopefully leading rather us, uh, leading us in a talk about some of the uh, most pressing news items of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe he's got stuff ranging from uh, Mid-South Scouting School starting up this time of year to uh, some international business conflicts all the way over in India. So it's truly, truly a wide world of cotton that Jim is going to bring to us uh, in our first segment. After that, we really are just going to dive into sort of a preview of our April issue. We want to discuss two of the more intriguing items that we have packed into our April issue, which is away from this office now at the printer and will be arriving in your mailboxes here in a couple of weeks. Um, We want to talk about uh, a feature that Jim did and you could tell it was a story that he had a lot of sort of, he had fun writing. I think he had a personal attachment to it. And that was that this is the 20th anniversary of Bolgard being a part of our lives in this industry and uh, sort of the neat story of when that thing arrived and the shape that the cotton industry was in at that point and and the shape that it improved us to, for lack of a better verb there, uh, after its arrival. So that's a neat story we want to sort of jump off into. And after that, I want to discuss my column that's in the back of the April issue, which is uh, on a basic level sort of debating how legitimate my and our anger is at the Chinese government in light of where prices are right now. So uh, it's something that that I just had in my mind as we were writing this issue. And uh, to be honest, I would love to hear some of y'all's feedback. Um, if, if you if you want to reach out to us, of course, this thing will be more on your mind when the issue hits your mailboxes here in early April. But um, would love to know you you all's thoughts uh, on this topic. But but we can get into that later in the. In the podcast, Um, right now we want to take a quick break. You will want to stick around through that break, and uh, we will get to all of this and more afterwards. So we will be right back. Cotton Grower Magazine has the honor of saluting exceptional sacrifice and contribution to the cotton industry through our annual Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. Since 1970, 
Cotton Grower has handed out this distinguished honor to one individual who demonstrates tireless dedication to the cotton industry through involvement, innovation, and leadership in those issues that have a large impact on U.S. cotton as a whole. Achievement Award winners are chosen after extensive research and thoughtful input from around the industry. Cotton Grower offers sincere gratitude to Case IH and to Delta Pine for sponsoring the Cotton Grower Cotton Achievement Award. In joining the effort to recognize and honor industry leaders, these companies demonstrate their devotion to the cotton industry and their desire to see growers succeed. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, as Beck mentioned, we're, we're going to start out, as usual, with, uh, with several news items uh, that are of interest, of timely interest, to the cotton market at this point. And we're going to start down in, uh, in Mississippi, where Mississippi State University has scheduled uh, five scout schools. Uh, this is something they do every year to help people get trained and ready for, uh, for the growing season, particularly for, uh, you know, particularly to get them up to speed on things they should be looking for in the cotton, in the cotton fields. Uh, all of these schools are going to be held in April, uh, and it is much more, they've, they've taken the agenda and made it much more than just scouting insect pests. Uh, they're also talking about things like plant growth stages, uh, diseases, fertility, sampling techniques, and herbicide symptomology. So it's, uh, what they've done is they've created a full day of information and training. Uh, the dates and locations for, those, uh, for these scout schools, uh, they're starting on April 4th. They will be at the Hobson Commissary in Clarksdale, Mississippi. On April 6th, they will be at the CAP Center in Stoneville, Mississippi. Uh, April 8th, they'll be at the Magnolia Center in Verona, Mississippi. On April 12th, they'll be at the Agricola Storm Shelter. That's in Loosedale, Mississippi. And on April 13th, they'll be at the McKenzie Arena in Raymond, Mississippi. Uh, each of these schools starts at 9 a.m., uh, according to the agenda, they should be finished by 3.30 p.m. There will be lunch provided. Uh, if you want to go to the schools, there are, there's no pre-registration needed. Just simply walk up to the door and sign in. And if you need the uh, continuing education units uh, for whether you're a consultant or anyone else in, in the industry, uh, you'll certainly be, these, these meetings will certainly help you qualify for, uh, for those CEU hours. So... Uh, Keep that in mind, Mississippi State and their scout schools coming up here over the next couple weeks. Corona and Raymond, those are two new ones on this Mississippi boy here. And I, and I also find myself going, I sure hope this Agricola Storm Shelter is bigger than I think it, <laughs> it is. I'm sure it is. Right. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's a wonderful facility that we will have to visit sometime. It, yep, as soon as, we're, as soon as we're able. That's right. Uh, staying in Mississippi... Uh, we got some news this week from our friends down at Staple Cotton in Greenwood. Uh, their board of directors met uh, within the past couple of weeks, and uh, during that meeting officially recognized the receipt by Staple Cotton of the 100 millionth bale of cotton that has come through that marketing cooperative. Uh, it was uh, The bale was produced out of Donaldsonville, Georgia, by uh, a grower named Mark Hanna. Uh, it was ginned at the Miller County Gin Company, and uh, and delivered to uh, to Greenwood. Actually, as uh, I think Meredith Allen, uh, the president and CEO of Staple Cotton, basically uh, commented saying that th this 100 million bale was such a milestone, and a testimony to the strength of the company, 
they're, uh, they've opted to keep the bale and put it on display. And I believe, uh, according to some of the photos they sent, that bale is certainly sitting in, on display in the lobby of the Staple Cotton headquarters. Now, just, uh, just to give you an idea of, of the growth and how things have changed for, for this organization, uh, Staple Cotton started business in 1921, and in that first year, uh, its members produced a little over 156,000 bales. Five years later, the number of bales received reached 1 million. Jump ahead to 1956, they hit the 10 million bale mark. And uh, basically, when, when you look at the fact that they didn't start receiving 1 million bales or more per year, until the 1980s, uh, getting to this 100 million mark uh, this quickly was pretty amazing. So it's a it's a great uh, it's a great milestone for Staple Cotton. It's a it's a good organization. Uh, Shane Stevens, who is their vice president of cotton services and warehouses, as as we've mentioned before, is the uh, is the the standing chairman of the National Cotton Council. Yeah. So they're deeply involved in the industry. But I know uh, Meredith Allen is somehow involved i only know this because i saw him lining up with the other like bowl he was at the big table at the uh council's recent annual i believe meeting. i believe he is on the board yes there you go okay yes absolutely so uh congratulations to staple cotton on that uh on that little on that milestone achievement for sure uh, uh an organization that has played a big role in mississippi's ag history uh very important sort of brand down there um uh, mm -hmm. so congrats to those guys um, our, our next subject, uh, our next topic is, is one that I think everybody should, uh, should take note of and, uh, and it will obviously put a smile, I think, on, on many of our faces. Uh, the announcement last week that Marriott, uh, the hotel chain, uh, is now going to be offering customers uh, terry cloth towels and mats in all of their hotels uh, and with all of these, these items being made in the U.S. using U.S. grown cotton. Uh, they've entered into a partnership with Standard Textiles to develop the goods. Uh, they're going to be using these in, in, uh, in roughly their 3,000 hotels in the U.S. Uh, and the items are going to be made in Standard Textiles, uh, Thomaston, Georgia, and Union, South Carolina plants. Uh, good news for the economy in, in those, those little markets. Uh, as it, it, it might mean uh, potentially mean new jobs for, uh, for some folks in those locations. So. Yeah. Again, you know, a thumbs up to Marriott for uh, for standing back and and uh, and helping the U.S. cotton industry out. For sure, shout out to Marriott. You know that we did a story not too long ago on how foreign companies were investing. I was just actually randomly reading this story a couple of weeks. We're investing in U.S. spinning mills, right, um, to where we can be not only producing raw cotton here but making products here. Um, I'm actually going to reference that later on in this podcast. But anyhow, that's neat that, you know, we're starting to do, you know, I would like to see more of that, us mm -hmm. going from field to retail shelf entirely within the borders of the U.S. That, that can only mean good things for folks here in the Cotton Belt. Absolutely. Anything we can do to increase demand, even if it comes at this point in this situation coming through one company, uh, that's a huge company. That's quite a bit of, uh, that's a bit of demand when you sit back and try to think what the inventory of towels and bath mats at an indi at one individual Marriott hotel could be. Yeah, got to be Buku. They leave gotta you those be little Buku's. cards. Oh yeah. That say please reuse your towels because we're <laughs> right. They're doing their part for the environment. That must mean that there's a bunch of 
washcloths and bath towels coming through there. So. Absolutely, and and they will all be 100% U.S. cotton. So, uh, as as Beck says, we're spanning the globe a little bit today too, uh, and we're ta- we're shifting, we're casting an eye to India at this point, and there seems to be a little uh, kerfuffle going on at this point between the uh, the Indian government and Monsanto over uh, Monsanto's genetically modified cotton seeds, primarily those containing the uh, the Bogard or Bogard II product. Uh, the government is uh, is concerned that the the cost of seeds and the cost of the technology is too much, and they have imposed a cut of roughly 70% in royalties that local firms uh, will pay Monsanto for this cotton technology. Uh, naturally, that uh, that is not sitting well with Monsanto or with other people, other companies in the industry, because certainly it could set a precedent that could impact a number of companies choosing to do business in India. Uh, Monsanto is going to take the government to court over this royalty. Uh, when, you, when you sit back and, and, and look at it, part of this is, is, yes, they're listening to their growers who are complaining that even even though they have made tremendous gains and have become the world's largest cotton producer in large part thanks to these seeds. Uh, you know, they just they feel like they're paying too much. Uh, there's also a movement within the Indian government uh, that they are expecting to develop their own genetically modified cotton varieties next year, uh, and that obviously would be a you know that I really when you sit back and look at it, that's really kind of the underlying movement here. We want to grow our own. We want to develop our own. Once we do that, we don't need the other companies and, and other products in there. Uh, it's a calculated risk on India's part. Um, from from my perspective, I think Monsanto is just sort of sitting back and, and playing it the way that, that any company would at this point to uh, to protect the markets that they have. Uh, it's going to be an interesting interesting subject to keep uh, keep tabs on. Uh, one of one agricultural economist uh, in India who has been advising the government on uh, on all of their activities says that even though India might be able to develop its own cotton seeds based on Monsanto's current Bolgard II technology, that efficacy will probably drop sharply over the next five years as uh, as the pests that they intend to uh, to control become more resistant. Uh, and developing new technology is going to require expensive and extensive research that the, com- that the country may or may not be able to, uh, to afford at this point. So it'll be interesting to sit back and watch and see how this business environment works uh, through all of, the, through all of uh, this activity. Yeah, that they, uh, from a global stock sort of perspective, just got done writing about all this stuff for the April cover story. Um, is it April cover story that I, that the Joe Nicosia yes. recap is in? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. It seems like so so long ago. <laughs> right. Well, well, we go to this thing at the, the last week of February, and I write the cover story, but you totally skip through March, and it doesn't, it doesn't show up until April. April, right? So anyway. it's a really good article. Let me let me guarantee you, you will enjoy reading it. Well, thank you. Well, it, we're recapping what Joe was saying in the article. And he does deal with sort of nationally what each country is bringing to the global uh, uh, stocks of cotton each year. Okay, and so one thing that jumps out at me, I didn't realize before I was writing this thing, 
you know, China has cut back severely. They're only going to plant, I believe, seven and a half million acres of cotton this year. You compare that to the United States, going to plant somewhere around nine million, we think. India is planting 30 million acres, and and I'm not entirely sure I'm talking acres or hectares here. So it's a lot of cotton. It's an insane amount of cotton that these guys are planting. It's almost like they are not responding. You know, the whole a big theme takeaway from Joe's speech was, yes, yeah, it stings to plant cotton right now. As much as it hurts to say it, that's the market doing its job. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. market is trying to get you to not plant <clears throat> cotton because we've got such a glut of cotton available on the market right now. India, they're just plowing right ahead. Um, and they are just planting three, literally over three times as much as we are planting in cotton this year. And I can't speak to the yields that they harvest over there, although, and I don't know. I don't know any of this for sure. Assuming that Monsanto is providing seeds that are of the same quality that, you know, we plant over here. Of course, there are a lot of seed companies over here. But assuming that they are yielding as much as we are yielding, man, that's a boatload of cotton that they are, you know, throwing out there onto the market every year. So this story about them sort of having a schism with Monsanto right now, if you're looking for a, a net positive out of it, if you're an American farmer, I mean, if they start producing their old seed and they start experiencing yield uh, drops, well, I mean, you know, it may just be a drop in a bucket globally, but it's a it's a drop in the bu- in the good bucket. Yeah, if you're a U.S. grower. Well, I think the other thing about India that that you've really seen over the last couple of years is their cotton production has generally been consumed internally by their own textile industry they haven't been haven't been in the export market uh, with the exception of the last two to three years they finally they overproduced uh, based on their textile capacity and demand uh, so this you know the relatively newcomers to the export import market and uh, and certainly geographically are a whole lot closer to China which which at that point was still importing a certain amount of cotton. So, uh, it'll it's again it'll be interesting to watch and see what happens on all this. Yeah, uh, need to get our buddy Sesh uh, Ram Kumar in here. Yes, absolutely. Our sometimes contributor professor there at Texas Tech who loves uh, keeping us posted on what else going on in India. Um, anyhow, it's a good idea. We'll probably we'll try to get him hooked up here in a, in, in a couple of episodes. I, I would look forward to it for sure. <laughs> And one last item, we've, we've talked over, over the last couple of, of months about mergers and acquisitions and rumors and things that are going on. And we've, you know, we now know for sure that, that Dow and DuPont are coming together. Uh, we know that Kim... We heard that from the source last week. We heard that from the source. Or, the la- or rather the last podcast. Right. Uh, we know that Kim China has, has acquired Syngenta or is in the process of acquiring Syngenta. Uh, and now we get rumors that Monsanto is uh, is talking uh, in some preliminary discussions with BASF, but they are also in some preliminary discussions with Bayer about uh, about possibly their uh, some of their crop science units, including the cotton unit. Uh, everything at this point is purely speculative. Nobody from any of the, any of the companies obviously are commenting on it. Uh, but again, I think it comes back to the state of the agricultural business at this point, and we see that we've seen this cycle through before. 
Uh, we're in a period now of, uh, you know, profits are down. Uh, it's it's an ideal time for consolidation. We already see that moving through the through the market. So it'll it'll be interesting to sit back and see. Monsanto is not one to uh, to sit back and and do nothing at this point. So we'll we'll see where those discussions go and and how things might work out over over the next few uh, few months. Yeah, man, that would be. Obviously, nothing even remotely written in stone at this point, but what a blockbuster that would be. <laughs> if you're Cotton Grower Magazine, um, you know, <laughs> those are two big supporters of a lot of the, the projects that we do around here, and, and obviously both provide, uh, uh, I'm speaking of Bayer and, and Monsanto here, such value to the market in their seeds, the seed advancements that we've seen over the past, you know, several years, so... Definitely one to keep your eye on. Yeah, I, ca- I can't imagine what the antitrust discussions would be like yeah, oh on gosh. that. But uh, anyway, we just report them as we hear them. That is true. That is true. Uh, I believe we are. Is that the end of our That's it. news items? Uh, in that case, we are going to take a brief break here. And on the flip side of this thing, we want to talk about some of these uh interesting items that you will find inside the pages of the April issue of Cotton Grower Magazine. So uh, stick with us here and we will be right back. All right, so uh, Welcome back with us. We want to, for our little feature segment here at the end of today's Cotton Companion Podcast, we're going to just kind of talk about our, what we consider a couple of the really intriguing items that were are inside the pages of our April issue, which will be hitting your mailboxes in a couple of weeks. We actually mentioned this topic of the 20th anniversary of Bolgard. It first kind of came across our radar um, as we were gearing up for the Mid-South Farm and Gin Show because Jim, uh, as fate would have it, was involved in sort of promoting and marketing that Bolgard when it first arrived on the market 20 years ago. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, the reason it was on our radar was because you guys introduced it at the Mid-South Farm and Gin Show. Is that correct? Actually, we introduced it uh, at the Beltwide that year. Okay. In 19, 1996, and yes, 20 years ago, I, I'm really starting to feel old. <laughs> right, you know, right. Pardon me while I, you know, the crick in my back. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyhow, it was on Jim's mind. Uh, he was remembering when we both agreed that would be kind of a neat thing to probe into, sort of uh, the conditions around U.S. cotton at that time. You know, I think people kind of forget. Um, you hear it all the time amongst our weed uh, extension friends of the magazine um, who we regularly lean on for events and for quotes inside the book. Um, And they, you know, it's just sort of freely admitted that there was a minute there in the early 2000s and and late 90s where with the weed advancements and the bowl guard being introduced, farming got a lot easier than it had been you know, a decade before, five years before. Oh, no question. In there, and it's kind of like people forgot. For If you're my age, you never really knew. I mean, I was in high school, just kind of a peon on the farm at that point. You didn't really know the dire straits that the industry was in when it came to some of these 
crop protection issues mm -hmm. uh, around this time. And so enter this product uh, 20 years ago this year that's really saved the bacon. And so that's about all the, the teeing up I can do for you. <laughs> As I said, Jim was around during that time. He knew a lot of the major sort of uh, players that were involved in bringing this thing to market. And so he really um, hit this one out of the park, this story, because uh, he, he had such good contacts on this thing. So I'm going to let him tell you about the story that he did. Well, thanks, Beck. Uh, and, and for those of you who, who were, were in, actively involved growing cotton back in – the early nineteen, early to mid nineteen nineties, uh, you'll remember what uh, what worm control was like, particularly in uh, in nineteen ninety five. Uh, going back and talking to to several sources and several people that that I, I recalled and, and worked with at that point in nineteen ninety five, basically there were certain parts in the cotton belt, uh, in the eastern cotton belt. Uh, where growers just could not control tobacco budworms. They were completely out of control. They had become so resistant to pyrethroids, there just really weren't any other options, and cotton yields that year were just horrible. It was, uh, it was an expensive crop. It was, a, you know, it was not a very profitable crop, and a lot of growers were really just kind of figuring, trying to sit back and go, can I even afford to grow cotton? anymore at that point. Uh, out west, you get into the western cotton belts out in, in Arizona and California, uh, pink bollworm was the primary issue there. Uh, and for those of us in, in the eastern part and are not familiar with the pink bollworm, it's a worm that basically hatches from, from the moth, from the moth egg, and after within a week grows to the point where it burrows itself into the bowl. So it's active actually not visible. All you can do when you were scouting was go out and look for the little pinholes in the bowl that would give you some indication that uh, that you had a problem. Uh, so certainly any type of foliar applied in insecticide wasn't even reaching that pest and they basically would just eat the bowls up from the inside out. Um, so in, in looking at this uh, I went back and talked to, uh, to several several researchers that I, that I worked with at that point. Uh, one of them that I went to was Dr. Ron Smith, who's the extension entomologist at Auburn. Uh, he had actually, in our discussions, he recalled he'd actually been working with the technology uh, since the early 1990s. So he'd seen it in his research plots. Uh, he was convinced that it had some potential, uh, that it could be a game changer. Uh, but after 1995, he actually, he actually went on record as saying that uh, they could no longer grow cotton in Alabama without some sort of new technology. Um, he, uh, he basically will tell you that uh, the Bogard technology saved Alabama's cotton industry. Um, he says uh, he was estimating that roughly 77% of the acres in Alabama in 1996 went to the Bolgard technology and the thing is the technology really drove it because it wasn't the varieties it was introduced in two Delta Pine varieties they were good varieties but they weren't great varieties but that really didn't matter because if you couldn't control budworm um, you weren't going to have anything in the field to uh, to pick anyway uh, the uh, in, 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 the in the south at that point, you also had the boll weevil eradication program that was gearing up. Uh, it happened to hit Alabama 
1996 as well, uh, moving in and moving across over into Mississippi. So you had two, two insecticide or insect control measures that were hitting the market at the same time, and it made a huge, huge impact on, uh, on insect control. Uh, it allowed basically the Bogard, uh, in talking with folks, they, the one thing that they most recalled is it gave them the ability to predict or estimate their insect control cost uh, for the first time. Because when you're spraying once or twice a week for God knows how many weeks trying to control uh, the outbreaks, uh, there was no way to estimate what your insect costs were going to be up front. And, uh, and then put the boll weevil eradication program in there on top of that. Uh, that gave you a planned treatment program uh, to ba that basically eradicated, you know, cotton's original major pest uh, from the fields. Uh, when you go out to the west, I uh, spent some time visiting with uh, Dr. Peter Ellsworth, who's a professor uh, out at the University of Arizona at the Maricopa Agricultural Center. He also worked with the technology before uh, before commercialization uh, and their problem there was anything they had to spray for pink bollworm was antagonizing their entire system around insects in in cotton uh, he says there were just so many negative consequences of some of these control measures that uh, that bt cotton or bogard was was sort of like a miracle to him Basically looking at it as saying with conventional insecticides, the best they could ever really do is 50% control. Uh, and, and I love the comment he made. says, we were really on a treadmill that was just not sustainable. So uh, bringing Bolgard into the equation, uh, it helped create an environment where, where growers could use selective materials to control other pests, let them start managing the system, letting the system manage itself through, uh, through con conservational biological control, uh, and that has basically over the last 20 years led to the effective eradication of pink bollworm in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, and northern Mexico. Uh, if you want to go back and look at, at, at the big numbers, what it's really meant economically to the industry, uh, when you take into consideration increased production and, and reduction of costs for U.S. cotton growers, uh, the estimate numbers that, that we were that were provided to us from through Monsanto uh, is looking at a 4.35 billion dollar benefit. My goodness! Uh, and the estimated reduction of insecticide use in the U.S. is basically 31 million pounds of active ingredient, or basically a 17 percent reduction. So. Uh, it was one of those products that, that really and truly changed an industry that had not changed a lot in the hundred years before it. Uh, it was a significant, obviously a significant event. Uh, I think as, as Ron Smith told me, you know, you could go back and look at the introduction, introduction of pyrethroids, uh, you know, maybe 10 years before as, as certainly a significant event, but they rapidly lost their effectiveness. Uh, but I, I, one, one thing I do remember in, in all of this and in discussions, Dr. Gary Lenz, who's, uh, who was the extension entomologist at University of Georgia uh, at that time, I remember talking with him about it, and he was just so excited about the Bolgard technology. But he said uh, it always brings it, growers have a way of always bringing him back to, uh, to earth, you know, and keeping his excitement in, you know, keeping his excitement in check 
at that point because he would go to grower meetings leading into early 1996 before before the planting season and he would explain the technology and show the results of his work and and things like that and he would he'd open the floor up for questions and inevitably the first question someone would ask would go well that's really great but when are we getting roundup ready yeah, yeah right yeah that's that's one problem down yeah i can believe it too you know one thing that sort of caught my attention as you were as you were sort of on the tail end of describing all of the financial some of the big numbers i think it was somewhere did you say 4 billion or something saved in in uh, yeah 4.3 billion saved in that was in further pesticide that it, when you take into increased production and reduction of pesticide costs reduction of costs and pesticide right you you also mentioned reducing the sprays themselves you're talking right. about putting less uh, pesticide out into the environment. Exactly. And some of these programs that U.S. Cotton is using to make itself more marketable now to a discerning com- uh, consumer, you know, we can point to how efficiently we're able to produce a crop now mm-hmm. and say, listen, we're not, you know, look at all this pesticide we're not using. Um, it, it, it matters today. This, this uh, technology introduction in addition to making cotton production uh, easier from a crop protection standpoint, it made it more marketable too. And so we are still reaping the awards. It's, it's still uh, having a big net positive impact. Well, you know, 20 years later, you're sitting there and, and this technology basically is, is the cornerstone for any IPM, you know, best management practices that, that you'll get in any state for, uh, for insect management. Yeah. And you almost really have to start, and I think the USDA numbers that we looked at last year, when when they when the varieties planted report came out, you know they also have have they also track adoption of technology in that report, and I think in terms of insect technology of whether it's Bolgard and or Bolgard two or Wide Strike or Twin Link, uh, all the technologies that are currently in the market. You're still looking. You're in the 97, 98 percent yeah. range in terms of adoption, which is uh, is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that that statistic right there shows you how much, how receptive U.S. cotton farm. You know, the market will tell you how good your product is. Exactly. Um, so interesting story. Y'all look for that one in the pages of the April issue. Uh, another thing you can look for there is my column, basically about. Is it justified to be angry with the Chinese uh, in light of where prices are today? I have a buddy, uh, as an aside, a friend of mine who works at one of the cotton uh, commodity trader groups here, a smaller group here in Memphis, and he occasionally emails me his sort of market recaps, and he sent me one a couple days ago that was just like so bullish, and you know, the Marcel, we've had, made a lot of sales of bales today around the world, and dot dot dot, you know, it's really upbeat, and I checked, and we were at like sixty-one cents or something, like you know, uh, earlier this week or anything above sixty right now is, ha- is right. It's, you know, great. it's good times, right? Yeah. So it's it's just kind of like, man, this is not. I'm not telling anybody who's listening to this podcast anything they don't already know. Not great times to be marketing a cotton crop, and you you have to ask yourself how did we, how we got here, and I know uh, you guys are. Uh, if you've read Cotton Grower Magazine, you're aware of sort of this road that we we got on four years ago, five years ago, 
when cotton shot up to uh, you know over two dollars in in uh, for a minute there, and because there was such a scarcity of cotton on the global market, and so in response, the government of China gets this bright idea. Again, if you're talking about why we got here, you have to start with the government of China, which mm-hmm. is the crux of of this whole thing that I'm talking about. They decided in response to that that they were going to start hoarding cotton in an effort to protect their, they have a big spinning industry over there, they wanted to protect them against these damaging market fluctuations, they wanted to protect their own cotton growers from these market fluctuations, so they're buying this cotton, you know, from them at like a dollar twenty some odd cents a pound, and they start this process of hoarding this cotton over four or five years, and it for four or five years there, it artificially propped up cotton prices because they were also holding this cotton off the market. So there were really uh, global stocks. There were really two global stocks. There was the grand total, and then there were what was really available on the market, mm-hmm. which was everything outside of China. So you had an artificial false sense of security that were giving us the manageable prices that we've had. And then eventually, you know, we get to 2016, end of 2015, and China realizes this thing they're doing is not sustainable. They have suppressed the market. They, they want to change their policy. And the only way to do that is to start selling, selling off this cotton. And we're still kind of waiting around to see the pace at which they're going to do this. Are they going to explode and drop it all at once? Um, or are they going to slowly seep this cotton back out there, right? And so here we are at 60 cents. Um, not great, right? And so I had never really considered, to be honest, for the past few years, I had been caught in this line of thinking that was, well, what the Chinese are doing, I know it's going to sting someday. Um, you know, it doesn't seem sustainable, but we're looking, you know, it was just... What were we looking at price-wise two years ago? You know, 70, 80 cents. Right, we were in 80, yeah, about 75 to 80 cents. Yeah, and so, you know, it's like, you know what? The folks I know who grow cotton are doing okay. You know, it's not ideal. It's not dollar cotton. Right, but you can still make money. Yeah. Right, right. So, like, you know, whatever whatever is keeping us afloat at that point, you had no reason to rebel against this policy at that point, I guess is what I'm saying. To be honest with you, what what really sort of changed my line of thought as far as um, the culpability of the Chinese was back in, let me see if I can find a date on this thing, I want to say early, late February, um, we actually mentioned it a couple podcasts ago, where before the House, uh, before Congress... They basically had a hearing. The House Committee on Agriculture convened a hearing in late February. Here we go. I should have outlined that. Um, where they were talking about the state of the rural economy. And you had testimony there from Tom Vilsack. And you had testimony there from Mike Conaway, uh, the House Ag Committee chair. And uh, a favorite of mine. Y'all have probably heard me talking about Conaway uh, on multiple platforms here uh, at Cotton Growers. So, he kind of way delivers this speech that is to Vilsack. At this point, they're still, or he's still urging him to do the cotton oil seed designation. But he mentions he first, in, oops, Mike fell over there as I tried to grab it. Uh, he first sort of mentions this notion of culpability of how we got here, and uh, he has this quote. He gave a he gave kind of a long speech that was really great. We mentioned it in the making cotton section of our April issue. 
But a quote he says is, I don't have to tell you that acres planted to cotton, I'm quoting Michael Conaway here, I don't have to tell you that acres planted to cotton are now at their lowest levels in 108 years, excluding one year in the early 1980s when the government forced set-asides. That was 1983. He says, we also know that this is not due to bad management on the part of farm families. This is due in large part to the actions of the Chinese and Indian governments over which our farmers have absolutely zero control. There is a very real decision to be made here, he says. Will the United States government allow foreign countries to steal our cotton production, just as they stole our textile mills, or will we stand up and say, no, not this time, China and India. We will challenge your subsidies and stand by American farmers until truly free and fair trade is restored. End quote. Um, boy, I'm really tossing my microphone around here. Jim's having a chuckle at me, wrangling with this thing. Um, the terms that he puts that in were really kind of eye-opening to me. Uh, this idea, you know, yes, prices are bad, farm families are struggling, and they had absolutely, they are entirely victims here. Right. They are in the position they're in because of the Chinese government and this policy that they that the Chinese set aside that is doing direct harm to our farm families right now. And that's 100% spot on. You know, we get challenged uh, yearly in WTO for so-called subsidies, subsidizing cotton production in this country. And yet you have the Chinese government spending $1.29, paying their cotton producers $1.29 for cotton to produce that cotton when the world does not need that cotton. Um, Doing it totally to prop up their own rural economy. And here we are harmed because of it. Can you imagine the United States government paying, obviously we don't have a communist government, but can you imagine the United States government giving a subsidy of $1.30 a pound for cotton to each of the farmers in this country and the absolute uproar that would happen in the halls of WTO uh, the next time they convened? It would be an uproar. Um, so, it, again, this kind of way, quote, sort of took me out of this line of thought of can you – be mad at the Chinese this year when you were okay with this policy two years ago. That's really kind of circular logic, being okay with the idea that they were holding all this cotton off the market and propping your cotton prices up to where they were two years ago. They're saving us from a monster that is of their own creation. You can't say, oh, thank you for not unleashing all this cotton that you've hoarded up. Uh, oh, by the way, why did you hoard all that cotton? <laughs> you know, without acknowledging that it's only there because they did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, when I was thinking of setting up this segment, I briefly debated on letting you like argue the pro of this and like letting me be like devil's advocate. And be I'm like, not sure there is a true pro and a right. true con right. to this. Right. Uh, you know, and, and going back to your statement on on WTO and and the reason they they tend to you know, focus on the U.S. programs a little bit more. And it, one thing that struck me over the, over the last couple of years as, as, you know, the U.S. has battled through this, particularly with the, uh, you know, with the whole Brazil issue, is the fact that the WTO still considers countries like China and India to be developing countries. And the rules for developing countries, in their eyes, are totally different than the rules for developed countries. So, you know, there's, 
you know, you can you can almost understand it from the perspective of, you know, some of the the West African countries that truly are not developed countries. But when you start talking about Brazil and you start talking about China and you start talking about India, uh, there are some very very strong subsidy programs. They don't call them subsidy programs, but in reality, they are. Uh, and and they're propping their industries up so much more so much more than uh, than the U.S. is certainly allowed to do yeah. at this point. Yeah, you know, and and as kind of way mentioned in that quote that I said, this is not unprecedented. You know, this is not apples to apples what happened, but you know, at the end of the day, we used to have a spending industry in this country too mm-hmm. that was three, four, five times larger than it is now, and then due to some Chinese and others sort of policy shifts in that industry, in that sector, suddenly everything moved east. And now, and it cost Americans jobs and uh, and manufacturing. Who is it that sings the, uh, oh, there's, I, I always do this with the songs that I get in my head. We can't make it here anymore. Um, it's a Texas singer. I'm going to think of it during the break before I set up the outro, okay? <laughs> I'm going to go, when I say think of it, I mean Google it. Yes, um, and, and, and if he doesn't, somebody please write in. <laughs> right, and, and, right. That's Larry, Mc, it's uh, James McMurtry. Okay. It's, uh, it's uh, he's kin to Larry McMurtry, the author. It's James McMurtry. Um, anyhow, it's a song about how we don't make, you know, all of our uh, production jobs are overseas now. And this is a classic example of it. It's because the world is flat, and when the Chinese do something uh, that is that we couldn't get away with in WTO, and our, we feel like our hands are tied, guess what? At the end of the day, it's the American working class that loses jobs because right. of that. And the, the U.S. government, particularly through the mechanism of the WTO, is at a point where... They're either going to stand up for U.S. cotton or the same thing's going to happen that happened with the U.S. textile industry. Right. Um, and I feel like I sound like I'm on a real soapbox. With I, I, was, I was about, about to say, that. you are truly having a great soapbox moment here, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, which is which is something. We do, we do have soapbox debates here in the office. Yeah, uh, well, mostly about SEC football. <laughs> <laughs> but not, not as, not as uh, you know, real world, for lack of a better term. As this issue has been, I, don't, I guess I, we are, I am, have a heightened awareness of these issues coming out of the winter meetings and listening to Joe Nicosia and listening to Mike Conaway and, and Bill Sack. And, and it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I think, you know, the market is still waiting to see what China is going to do. I saw a news report this morning, in fact, that hinted strongly that the Chinese will start doing something uh you know, it says mid to mid to late April. Well, you know what? It's uh, we're past mid April. We're moving into late April. Well, we're March. March. You're right. Well, we're getting there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, it's 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 just senility, or the fact that I keep looking at calendars when you're when you're when you're doing magazines, you it's always magazine. work two months ahead yeah, of time. Yeah, so yeah, mid mid to late April may be the time point from which uh, from which we may find out what China's going to do. Uh, so it's it's not something that's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I think the best we can do at this point is is hang on, uh, make as much noise as we can, get our uh, you know our trade representatives and other folks to uh, to make noise, and you know we'll we'll ride this through. Yeah, yeah, can't do anything. That was a big theme at, at Joe's speech 
2016 is what it is at this point. Hunker down, ride it through. He does – Joe had a very optimistic long-term approach, and he was very much aware of the situation in China. He says even still, things are only going to get brighter from here. So it's a, it's a hunker down and persevere type of year for U.S. cotton. We're not telling you all anything you don't know. And you'll enjoy all the details in Beck's article. There you the go. Issue. There you go. Very good bow tie to put on that, uh, Jim. We want to wrap it up right there. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get out of here. So stick around. We will be right back. And that big old building was a textile mill. It fed our kids and it paid our bills. But they turned us out and they closed the doors. We can't make it here anymore. You see those pallets piled up on the loading dock? They're just going to set there till they rock. There's nothing to ship, nothing to pack Just busted concrete and rusted tracks Empty storefronts around the square There's a needle in the gutter and glass everywhere You don't come down here unless you're looking to score We can't make it here anymore So okay, that's going to just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion Podcast. We want to thank you sincerely for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, by all means, tell your buddies about us uh, when you're at the, at the uh, coffee shop, when you're at uh, the lunch gathering spot. Let them know about the Cotton Companion podcast. There are three easy ways they can uh, find us. Number one, simply go to cottongrower.com. Search for the Cotton Companion in the search bar, and you will be taken to a landing page where all of our episodes uh, are stored. Uh, Number two, you can subscribe to our channel on iTunes. If you're familiar with iTunes on your smartphone, you can go ahead uh, and search for us there, The Cotton Companion. Click on it. uh, Click on our channel and go ahead and subscribe. Once you've done that, you can leave us a rating. Let us know if you think uh, we're doing great. If you think we're doing bad, we would love to hear your feedback. Another great way to be sure you receive each installment of The Cotton Companion, the best way in my opinion, is to go ahead and sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. Jim here works hard to pack those e-newsletters with uh, the relevant news of the day each week and uh, deliver those things. They hit your email inbox every Tuesday morning like a clock. The man is like a Swiss clockwork uh, on time each week. So uh, occasionally you'll see those on Thursdays as well. You can do this by going to cottongrower.com. That's the homepage. Scroll down to the bottom and you'll find the link to subscribe to our e-newsletter there. It's relatively simple. Uh, Also, make sure you're following us on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you'll find us by searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. We hope that you you are enjoying our latest issue. That's the March issue. Um, The April one is due in your mailboxes in a couple of weeks now. As today's the 25th. That'll be maybe three weeks from now. Right. Three weeks from now, that one will be in your mailbox, so keep an eye out for it. It's a good one. This podcast is produced by Mr. Marcus Antonelli. He works at the mothership Meister Media Worldwide in lovely Willoughby, Ohio. My name is Beck Barnes. I will be back with you in two weeks' time for the next episode of The Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own cotton companion, Jim Stedman, we wish you and your farm all the best.